Uh, tonight's reading is from John 14, starting in verse 1. Uh, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that also you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Give me just a second here. Great. So again, um, it's such a privilege uh, to be here to share the word of God with you. Um, and I hope it's, it's a blessing to you all. There's always a slow one in every group, right? Do you know what I mean? Uh, someone who gets things a little later than everyone else. You know who they are. You're thinking about them right now, right? Um, it takes them a little while to get the joke, right? Or you got to give them really good directions or they're getting lost, for sure. Or you're getting on the Zoom for your growth group, same person every week. Uh, could someone let me in? What's the password? Um, we have a running joke about who that person is on our staff team. Uh, <laughs> Jody's laughing real. Um, I won't name names, but you know, you can, you can have a guess at who that is. <clears throat> Matthew Arnie. <clears throat> About 2,000 years ago, about 2,000 years ago, there was this group of men, 13 of them, and they had about 12 slow ones. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 men that followed him around in his ministry and heard what he taught, and boy, were they slow sometimes. You're always getting lost. They could never get on the Zoom. I know it's easy for me to stand here and call them slow when I haven't been in their shoes, but even Jesus sometimes turns to them and says, are, are you serious? Are you really not getting what I'm saying? Do you really not understand? While I was thinking about what portion of the Bible to bring to you guys, I was sort of mulling over this past year and all its madness and all its twists and turns. And what came to me is that we've lived this past year in so much confusion and fear and anxiety and disappointment. And that reminded me of the situation that the disciples found themselves in when Jesus said these words, that we've had read to us. It reminded me of the way they felt at this time. I think if we understand how Jesus' disciples felt at this time, it'll help us understand what Jesus really means uh, when he says these words in John 14. I think they're words that we should preach to ourselves over and over and over. So let's set the scene, okay? Jesus is with his disciples. They meet together in a place called the upper room. They've just eaten together. This is where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, so communion that we have uh, with each other every once in a while. This is where Jesus first told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. The atmosphere in this room is dense. It's dense. This is the night before Jesus would be taken to, to be crucified. The next day he would die. This was his last meal with his men. And Jesus keeps talking to his men about leaving. You see, he knows what's about to happen to them. Sorry, about what, what's about to happen to him and to them as well. Um, and they don't. What do you mean leaving? They must have thought. They're not getting it. They're a bit slow. See, Jesus had told them numerous times that he would leave, that he was going to die. Come back with me just a few chapters. John 12, verse 31. 
Jesus is speaking to them and he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, now look at this, to show the kind of death he was going to die. Again and again, Jesus keeps telling them, I am going to die. And they don't get it. They don't understand. Why? Why can't they just get this? Why is this so hard for them to grasp? It's a bit complex. You see, Jesus is a person who called them to follow him. They dropped everything in their lives and followed him. Jobs, family, you name it. He was their master. He taught them. He cared for them deeply. He calmed the storms when they feared for their lives. They loved him and he loved them and they had believed in him. They believed in him as their Lord, as the Son of God. By that I mean they thought of him as king. They believed in him as king. He was their king. And he was their king. Jesus is king over this whole world. But they also thought that Jesus was on this earth to be a great military, political leader. A great king who was going to bring the nation's enemies into his submission. And they were his inner circle. They were his inner circle. They truly believed he was king. And they believed his kingship would look like glory and honor for him and for them. But Jesus tells them, no, my kingship will look like something else. It will look like suffering and death. Say you're playing for a small local football team. <clears throat> you know, recreational game Sunday afternoon or something. Saturday afternoon. Sorry, it's not Sunday afternoon. You should be at church. Um, <clears throat> before the game starts, your coach pulls you in, okay? Says, guys, I have some big news. Lionel Messi is here. And he's playing on our team. What? what? He, he's here? He's, he's playing on our team? I'm his biggest fan. He, I'm, I'm going to be on. He's going to be on with me? No, no way. You go out to the pitch. There he is. He's wearing your colors. He's warming up. He comes. He shakes all your hands. And right as the game is about to start, you see him go to the side. And he picks up some water bottles and starts handing them out. You're on. And he's the water boy. One of the greatest footballers in the world. He's the water boy with a towel around his shoulder. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about that? Water boy. Doesn't make an ounce of sense. It's how the disciples would have felt to think that Jesus, their great king, would die on a cross rather than reign as king. The idea is starting to sink in. Okay, They're starting to realize, hold on, our... Our grand dreams of what this would look like, our expectations of what Jesus will do right now, are, they're starting to crumble. Imagine then the shock. What, Jesus, you're leaving now? They're terrified and confused. How can he abandon us? He's our Lord and we've abandoned everything for him. What's going to happen to us if he leaves? How can he not build his kingdom here? What about all the things he said he's going to do? He hasn't done them yet. To add to this, a few things had just happened that probably left them stunned. We see them in chapter 13. To start, Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. That's something they could hardly conceive. Their, their master just tied a towel around his waist and went around scrubbing their dirty feet. They wouldn't have had a category in their minds to understand this. Immediately after that, Jesus told them there was a traitor in their ranks. A traitor! One of them, 
impossible. Each of them had followed Jesus and served with him just as faithfully as the next guy. They had all left everything behind and followed him, not just 11 of them. Yet in a dramatic exchange, Jesus singles one of them out, Judas Iscariot, as the one who was going to betray him. If you read the account, you'll see that uh, even when Jesus so plainly points at Judas, the disciples could not believe it. They were slow. They thought, Judas? Certainly not. The, the treasure? Not a chance. And they tried to think of other things this could mean instead of actually thinking that one of them could betray Jesus. And finally, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. Peter was by far the most vocal of the twelve, almost like their sort of de facto leader. He certainly was the most vocal in this room so far. After just saying that Judas would betray Jesus, and after Peter had just exclaimed his devotion to Jesus, saying, Lord, I'll die for you. Chapter 13, verse 37, he looks at Peter and says, you will deny me. So one of them would betray Jesus, and their leader would deny him. Imagine the tension in this room. What is going on? Jesus is doing things and saying things that don't add up. And the disciples' devotion to Jesus itself is coming under fire, it seems. And Jesus opens his mouth and speaks these comforting words to his men. Do not let your hearts be troubled. John 14, verse 1. He says to them, enough of your worrying. Enough of your anxiety. Enough of your fear. Do not let your hearts be troubled. What a wonderful thing it must have been to hear that from him. What this wasn't, though, was Jesus patting them on the back and saying, there, there, it's okay. He's very conscious of reality, about the bitter death he's about to endure, about his departure from earth. That hasn't slipped his mind. And so he grounds his encouragement to them to not be troubled in their faith, both their faith in God and their faith in him. You believe in God? Believe also in me, verse 1, have a look. You believe in God, he says, and they certainly did. These were religious people, they were Jews, they believed in God, it's what they did. Believe also in me. In saying this, he equates himself with God and grounds their relief from their confusion and fear in their faith in God and in him as God. Their solution to rid themselves of this fear was to have a proper understanding of who Jesus was and then to believe in him as their God. The elephant in the room, though, was that he was still going. Yeah, trust in him. Sure, trust in him. But he was still leaving. Jesus is in heaven right now. He didn't change his mind about going. And because his disciples can't grasp the meaning and necessity of his departure, he provides some perspective on his departure. And so he says, verse 2, have a look. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? When I learned this as a kid, I learned it in a version of the Bible. It said, in my father's house are many mansions. Mansions? Anyway, he doesn't mean literally, doesn't mean literally that his father is sitting in an enormous house, and that house has tons of rooms, and each of his disciples will get a room. That's not what he means. You'd also rather have a mansion than a room, right? 
Um, what he's doing is using imagery to depict a beautiful reality. He's saying to them, where my father lives in heaven, his home, has room for you all. And I am going there to prepare a place for you to come dwell with me and the Father. Do you see how his perspective is so different from theirs? They might think, Jesus, how could you desert us? How could you desert us? Leave us here. He says, I'm leaving in order to go to the Father and prepare a place for you with us so that you may come and dwell with us. I'm leaving so that the very thing that you desire most right now to be with me will be yours for eternity. If it were not so, would I have told you this? Verse 2. Do you really think I would just get up and leave you all? Jesus is true to his word. He loved his people. His departure was to get their heavenly home ready. What did he mean, though, when he said, prepare a place? Was he fixing the bed? Right? Was he fixing a meal? Making the beds, lighting some candles? Why did he need to go to prepare a place? What needed to be prepared? The answer to that has to do with the path that Jesus took to get to the Father. What was that path? What did Jesus have to do first? What stood in his way? It's the cross. Before Jesus could ascend into heaven to the Father, his mission was to suffer on the cross pay for their sins, rise on the third day. And in so doing, he prepared a place for his disciples who believed in him. You see that? Jesus' death and resurrection are what made a way for us to get to God. When Jesus took the punishment for our sins on himself. And so he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you with me and the Father in heaven by going to the cross rising from the dead, ascending to the Father. In doing that, I open the way for you and make it ready. And so Jesus' comfort to his disciples is that his departure, though it seems utterly bleak to them, means the preparation of their heavenly home. And it was the preparation of our heavenly home. And he won't just go. He won't just go. He'll come back. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where i am that right there is the glory of heaven that they and we will be with jesus the one who prepared a way for us that's the disciples concern right now they're not thinking i, I hope my mansion comes with an indoor pool and a movie theater they want to be with jesus and he promises them just that so he's looked at his aching disciples and told them don't be anxious don't be worried. Don't be unsettled. Your basis for that is belief in God and belief in me as God. Yes, I'm going to the Father. I am going. I won't be with you physically any longer, but my Father has plenty of space. I'm going to him to prepare a place for you, and I'm doing this through the cross, and one day I'll receive you into heaven, and you'll be with me forever. This path to the Father, the disciples know it. That's what he tells them in verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. You gotta know by now, right? I told you, enough times. I think the disciples should have understood both Jesus' way to the Father and their way. 
Jesus had told them multiple times that he was going to die and go to the Father. And they themselves had said before that Jesus has the words of eternal life, John 6. And had heard Jesus say that he was the resurrection and the life, John 11. They should have got this. But no, you'd be surprised. These guys are slow. Thomas blurts out, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Come on, Thomas. What kind of question is that? We think of Thomas as the doubter, right? That's what he's famous for. After Jesus had died, uh, the disciples were sitting together in a room. They had locked the doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They thought, oh, they, they killed Jesus. What, what are they going to do to us? And Jesus appears to them in the middle of the room, and they see his resurrected body. Thomas wasn't with them at the time. Maybe he slept through his alarm. Uh, maybe he set his alarm for p.m. instead of a.m. You ever do that? I did that last week when I was leading the service in the morning, woke up 30 minutes before church. He's not with them that time, okay? The disciples come to him and say, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, as if, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. John 20, verse 25. A week later, when they're all together, Thomas with them this time, maybe after the disciples pitched in, bought him a new alarm clock, Jesus appears to them again and says, Thomas, put your hands in these nail marks. Put your hand in my side. Then says to him, stop doubting and believe. We think of Thomas as the doubter. Truth is that Thomas isn't the only one who doesn't get it. A few verses down, Philip asks the question, and Jesus says, in essence, Philip, are, are you serious? Do you really not get it? Previous chapter, they all showed a lack of understanding, especially Peter. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What does this question really mean? What does it imply? Thomas is saying, Lord, if you would just tell us exactly where you're going and the way you're taking to get there, we could follow you to where you're going. But you haven't, so how are we going to do that? How can we know the way? That's his question. I think here Thomas is saying something similar to what Peter said in the previous chapter. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus said, My little children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter asks, Lord, where, where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I want to come now, Peter says. Lord, just tell us where you're going so we can know the way and follow you there, Thomas says. In these questions, we see that these men didn't realize that Jesus' way to the Father was one that they could not take. And praise God, it's one that they and we do not have to take. Because Jesus' way was one of humiliation and torture, a gruesome death on a cross. But their way and our way isn't this cross. It's through Jesus who went through the cross on our behalf. Our way is Jesus himself. Verse 4, when Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going, he means... You know me, and knowing who I really am, you know that I am the way to the Father. 
Thomas and the disciples don't get this. And so asked the Lord, where are you going? What's this way? But the way was sitting right in front of them. Jesus didn't have to draw a map to describe the way to get to God. In knowing Jesus, they knew the way already. And that's what Jesus tells them in verse 6, as he says one of the most glorious things in all of Scripture. Have a look. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel that Jesus himself made a way, that he went to the cross and died to make us right before God. I am the way. Not I can show you the way. Not I know the way. I am the way. That's why Jesus is at the heart of the Christian religion. Jesus isn't just a prophet or just a teacher that came to show us how to get to God or show us how we can make ourselves right before God. Jesus is himself the way to God. I had a conversation with someone about a month ago. I had just met him. Uh, I had mentioned I was going to church that day. He said uh, growing up he didn't really have religion in the home. But sort of in his late teens he went searching for religion. Uh, he tried a few things and eventually settled in on Buddhism. He heard some of their teachings. He thought it was attractive. He thought it made sense. He's like, you know what? I think this is the one for me. But he says to me, you know, this, this Jesus, I really respect this Jesus. He said a lot of good things, and he was a good man. You don't hear that as often as you used to. Jesus said a lot of things that our world considers really controversial uh, and finds increasingly controversial as time goes by. But he also said a lot of uncontroversial things. And my Buddhist friend here was thinking about the types of things that Jesus said that sort of aligned with what he believed. Something about finding peace or being kind to others or, or something like that. There's a really important distinction to be made here, though. Jesus, to Christianity, is not the same as Buddha to Buddhism. Here's what I mean. If you removed Buddha entirely from Buddhism, the figure, the person, like he never existed, but kept everything he taught and all other aspects of his religion entirely intact, his religion would go largely unchanged. Largely unchanged. Buddhists could still be Buddhists. Their practices would be essentially the same. Their eternal prospects would be the same. What would happen if you took Jesus out of Christianity but left his teachings exactly as they are? If 2,000 years ago I walked around and said everything that Jesus ever said, but Jesus never lived on earth, what would be the outcome? Christianity would completely collapse. Why? Because unlike key figures in other religions, Jesus did not present the way to God. Jesus came to be the way to God. Leave Jesus' teachings, but take Jesus out of the equation, and the whole thing crumbles. He is himself our way to God. It's why he says in John 10, verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's clear what he's saying. He is the way. Anyone else that claims to be a way is false. It's not I am one of many ways. I am the way. I am the truth, he says. What do you mean you're the truth? Because he doesn't just say that what he says is true. He says that he is himself the truth. Well, in the beginning of John's gospel, John describes Jesus as the word of God. 
in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's talking about Jesus there. The Word of God is truth. And the Word of God took on human form. Jesus, being God himself, was the embodiment of the truth of God. He was the truth of God incarnate. Everything that Jesus was and did and said was as the truth of God incarnate. He was full of truth. John 1.14. Consider again the exclusivity. Anyone else claiming to have truth about God outside of Jesus, anyone offering a truth that contradicts Jesus, cannot be telling the truth. It's not a truth up for debate. It's settled. It's finished. And he is the life. John says elsewhere, in Jesus was life. Jesus said he is the bread of life. John said, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he said that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. True life, eternal life, is found in Jesus. And so he's the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. And so it's not enough to hear Jesus' teaching maybe have a soft spot for it, or even actually obey it. It's not enough. That's a pretty common attitude, right? Or at least it was a long for a long time. What he taught was good. What he did was impressive. Water into wine, feeding 5,000 people, all that. His impact on history can't be understated, but he's not my king. Truth is that getting to God one day being in heaven is through Jesus himself. No matter who you are, what you do, your way to heaven is trust in Jesus. And exclusively Jesus. No one makes their way to heaven apart from him. No other way exists under any circumstance. But praise God. Jesus invites us to put our trust in him. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. To do that, put your trust in me. I'm going to the Father, but my mission is that I'm going to die on a cross first. I'll bear your sins on that cross. I'll rise again, and in doing this, I will make a way for you to get to God. Lord, what is this way? Thomas asked, and many others have asked, and maybe you asked. I am that way. I am the way to God, the truth of God, and the life of God. Trust in me, and trust in me only and you will be made right with God and follow me to heaven. What wonderful truth. In verse 29 of John 14, Jesus, speaking of his going away and all the things that entail, says, I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. His intention, he says, is that in telling his disciples these things now, in their time of trouble, when they do take place, they would believe. They believe that Jesus willingly laid down his life for sinners, believe that he fulfilled his entire plan of salvation, believe that he made a way to the Father. He told them that they would believe, that they would have faith. And Peter, as slow as he was that night, as much as he didn't seem to get what he was hearing, one day did get it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he said that through our faith in God, and through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have secured for us a glorious future in heaven. And that future in heaven 
he said, is one that will never perish, never spoil, and never fade. Those who believe in God and believe also in Jesus, as our text says, Jesus will one day receive them unto himself into his Father's home, and his Father's home remains forever. It will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. Its beauty will never fade. Its glory will never fade. It will be as glorious on the first day as it will be on the millionth day, as it will be on the billionth day. And in it they will be with Jesus. That is the hope. That is the hope. That is the view that does not let your heart be troubled. That is why Jesus said these things. How different would our lives be if we had this outlook on life, right? Yes, Jesus said these things to his disciples in a specific circumstance, but doesn't this speak to more than just them? Doesn't this tell us that Jesus is our basis for peace and that all troubles and anxiety are put into perspective when we think of our eternal prospects through Jesus? And so he says, come, believe in me. I wonder what you make of him. Are any of you like my friend I mentioned earlier? Jesus was good. What he taught was good, but that's it. Or does he mean absolutely nothing for you? And life with or without him is the same. Or maybe, for some reason or another, you have a bitterness towards him and what he said and did. Or maybe you believe he's the son of God. Maybe you're a Christian, but the way you're trying to get to heaven is by obeying some of the things he said rather than trusting in who he is. You believe in God, but functionally, you are in control. It's up to you and what you do. If any of these are you, why don't you seriously consider what he's saying here in John 14? Consider fully putting your trust in him. If I could leave one thing with you, that would be it. He's gone to God through the cross to prepare a place for you. And if you put your trust in him one day, he'll receive you into heaven that you may have eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus made a way for us to get to heaven. I pray, Father, that we would put our trust in him and only him. And uh, that he would be the only way uh, for us to get to heaven. I pray, Lord, you would give us this faith, this faith that does not let our hearts be troubled. Remind us of these things always. I pray these things in his name. Amen.